Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, July 2nd, marks our 127th program and uh, happy early 4th of July. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. And I'm of course your host for today's program, Surviving Sepsis in 2019. Uh, I'm joined today by my co-host at left, familiar face on the show, Laurie Prescott. Laurie is our CDI education director for us here uh, at Actus in Middleton, Massachusetts. She's the developer and lead instructor for the Actus Bootcamp line and serves as a subject matter expert, number of publishing credits and a number of Actus podcast appearances. So welcome back to the program, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Okay. Next, I'd like to introduce our uh, today's special guests. We have with us today Rhoda Chisholm. Uh, Rhoda is a CDI specialist at the Medical Center at Bowling Green, Kentucky, where she's played an integral part in rolling out the CDI program back in 2001. By way of background, she has more than 30 years of nursing experience with an extensive background in critical care, emergency care, case management, UR, and of course, CDI. She currently serves as the CDI liaison for the hospital's surviving sepsis campaign, as well as its heart failure management improvement project. So welcome, Rhoda. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Okay. We also have with us today, Laura White. Uh, Laura is a performance improvement engineer with the Med Center Health in Bowling Green, Kentucky. With eight years of healthcare experience and five years focused on quality and performance improvement, White focuses on inpatient quality metrics. She acts as liaison for the contracted abstraction teams and for clinical informatics on electronic health record updates. She also collaborates daily with CDI encoding leaders and one-on-one -on -one training with physicians. Um, she has ongoing projects and registration operations, obstetrical safety, pressure ulcer prevention, psychiatric patient safety, and sepsis treatment, including serving as the co-chair on her organization's sepsis pathway committee. And I'm glad to hear her have her on as well. Welcome, Laura. Hello, everyone. Okay. As I always do, we're going to start with a question related to today's topic. You should be seeing that on your screen right now. And the question for our, especially for our listeners on the podcast reads, are sepsis screenings in your organization based on sepsis 2 or sepsis 3 criteria? And your options are sep 2, sepsis 3, maybe you use a blend of the two. Uh, don't know or not applicable. Again, are sepsis screenings in your organization based on sepsis 2 or sepsis 3 criteria? And your options that we're giving you are sepsis 2, sepsis 3, blend of the two, don't know, or not applicable. All right, thanks for entering your results. I'm closing in on about 80% of our audience that have voted, so I'm going to go ahead 
and uh, close this poll out. And we will come back to these results in just a few minutes. All right. As I mentioned, our guests today are Rhoda Chisholm and Laura White. Rhoda and Laura, thanks for being guests on our podcast today. Um, this is your first appearance on the program, so I'm thrilled to have you on. For anyone who attended our ACTUS conference this past May in Orlando, uh, Rhoda and Laura presented on this topic uh, on the podium and on a very well-received session. So I'm kind of glad to have them back to do a little bit of a reprise on this topic. It was a very well-attended session, generated a lot of discussion. I know we'll have some today. Um, but let's talk a little bit about sepsis definitions. We just had a poll question about that and sort of uh, how they impact core measure reporting compliance, which I know is right up your alley, Laura, in particular. Um, so can we, maybe we could start with a short discussion of sepsis two and sepsis three, and, and uh, Jesus could probably be an hour in and of itself, but maybe just a few of the, few of the key differences there for our audience. Yeah, so the poll question really tapped into the core of the debate and the search for a gold standard for sepsis. We've really seen that from a professional side of things, from a number of different professional societies, that they in themselves are extremely torn. There's a lot of dissension. Um, in our in our webinar, we'll talk more about actual professional societies like the American College of Emergency Physicians, even some of the responses published by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign that have all really um, sided, sided with sepsis two, um, while there's some other professional organizations that are still bolstering sepsis three. We're still a couple of years out now from when sepsis three was published, and there's even more dissension and pushback now on sepsis three as we've been seeing against sepsis two. So really that debate originated um, in 91. We saw the first definition of sepsis as we have this sort of evolving search for the gold standard of how to operationalize and identify sepsis. And then in 2001 is when sepsis two, that definition was really announced to the international community from the second international sepsis conference. That's when um, really the development of what we know now of the sepsis two definition adopted by the SEP one core measure came out. And there was that expansion from sepsis one to sepsis two of additional diagnostic criteria and some of the specified organ dysfunction uh, tests as well as thresholds that we know of today. So that was, that was really the beginning of sepsis two. And then you had their surviving sepsis campaign taking wind and using that definition then to begin all of their clinical-based trials of what is best evidence care for sepsis. And so as that really took hold through 2002 through 2012, that's when we saw America's largest payer, Medicare, jump on board and say, okay, we're going to go with sepsis 2 definition and we're going to use their surviving sepsis campaigns three and six hour bundles as the basis of evidence-based care. And we're going to require hospitals to report how they're complying with that. And then it was the very next year in 2016 that a third international sepsis conference took place and the decision was published to redefine sepsis. We think it's been um, not articulate enough, overly sensitive, um, and those were the things that we heard coming out of the gate of that sort of proclamation. Um, some of the key differences that are out there um, really aren't as 
um, probably surprising as how many similarities there are, which can be a basis of an argument with some of these payers. And we'll go over that more in the webinar that we go over of just how many of the organ dysfunction criteria do the test thresholds uh, align as well as the actual test to operationalize that organ dysfunction. Um, so there's a lot more similarities really than there are differences that can be a basis of fighting back um, against payers. Really, ultimately, the major difference that we saw from the sepsis 2 to sepsis 3 definition and has been the source of a lot of denials is the fact that um, sepsis 3 basically says what we know of as sepsis with sears and an infection really is just doesn't meet sepsis. At that point, you may just be dealing with some of the manifestations of an infection. It's not until you have organ dysfunction that you can say a patient is septic, is what sepsis 3 basically argues. And when you compare those definitions, they use a lot of similar words. Both are, are based on infection, both talk to organ dysfunction, while the way we operationalize that, there are um, a lot of similarities and a couple of differences. But even with septic shock, you see the resounding words of persisting hypotension, and you see the reference to a lactate value. Um, so there's a lot more similarities, even though there's some nuances as far as differences that the private payers have really tried to tap into. Gotcha, thanks. Appreciate that more. Yeah, you know, I'm listening to you, and and um, there are those nuances, and it's often difficult to just talk to physicians about those nuances, let alone um, the the payers on the on the backside. And then when you get into the core measure reporting, um, I'm sure it complicates it as well. So can can you help us um, understand what some of the hospital submission and abstraction requirements are for the core measure um, bundle for SEP1 compliance? And how are these different competing definitions creating a challenge for you? Yeah, so, and, and Rhoda will want to probably add in add on to this, but the step one definition of that core measure bundle is completely based on what we know as sepsis two. So how you're meeting organ dysfunction in order to uh, be a part of that bundle is all based on the sepsis two definition, as well as ICD-10 coding um, also is still aligned with what we know as a sepsis two definition. There are diagnoses, the R60-20, R65 codes for um, severe sepsis with and without shock, but also just the basic sepsis cases um, or the basic sepsis diagnoses based on the organism all still bolster the sepsis 2 definition. And so that has not changed with sepsis 3. So when you have that international stage, it's still recognizing those three levels of severity, and that's what your core measure bundle is also attesting to, um, that can be very complicated. So as far as a case actually being pulled into the bundle for a facility is based solely on having a sepsis diagnosis. So when you, when the bundle itself is meant to be based on severe sepsis, but you don't have physician documentation um, for a severe sepsis diagnosis, only sepsis, that can be a bit problematic. So what happens then is the abstractors can take that case only coded with a sepsis diagnosis um, and they can look for organ dysfunction. And if that organ dysfunction isn't tied to infection and sepsis, um, it still gets used as a, a criteria of organ dysfunction. So that can be very dangerous, right? You may get mm -hmm. a lab value or have 
Sears thresholds that are really related to something different like dehydration or a chronic ailment. And if you just state that or acknowledge those results as a physician, if you don't tie those um, to something else, um, then they are used as criteria for sepsis in that bundle. So that can be very conflicting and really come down to a lot of physician documentation as being key. Um, something else really different from what you think of from like coding guidelines and abstraction is that nurses can start the bundle for your timer for the three hour and six hours. So if you've got built into your EMRs a lot of screenings for sepsis like we do in the ED and then also every 12 hours on the floors, then it may be that your nurse is the first one to document suspected infection and they may start the bundle in a physician not, you know, in a time frame that the physician hasn't even been at bedside yet. So that can also make things a bit problematic um, and just a, another variable in, in this sort of experiment of treating and identifying sepsis. Mm. Well, and the abstraction guidelines are entirely different than the coding guidelines. Right. I always tell everyone the first time I met Laura was at a committee meeting when she came to talk to us about a patient falling out of her bundle for sepsis and um, severe sepsis, and I politely told her at that time that the patient, the doctor didn't diagnose severe sepsis, so the patient didn't have severe sepsis, and that's when I learned the difference between abstraction and coding, and I think a lot of CDIs are not aware of the big differences between the two. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that that gets even more confusing for the physicians because they're often being given two competing sets of advice, one from CDI and one from quality. So you guys yeah. are you guys are good salesperson to sell the fact you, you need to work together for that consistent advice. For Absolutely. sure. So I'll even share with her aspects of a case. And it's, you know, from there, we both realize, okay, this is maybe how we need to frame that CDI query. Or we said this, and coding is really pushing back about the way we worded it. Um, going in a direction that we didn't expect. And so that's framed the way that Rhoda and her team has written some of the queries. Um, but also, you know, there's a lot of opportunity with trying to get sepsis ruled out a lot of times based on some of those criteria. And Rhoda and her team have been mm -hmm. really instrumental in that as well. Awesome. Great. You know, um, I hesitate to even bring this one up because this, this could be another show in and of itself, but we talking about some of the, the burdens of the, the varying definitions and abstraction versus coding, but of course now we also have auditors denying claims largely on the basis that they don't meet sepsis three criteria. Um, and we did get kind of a lengthy question from an audience member uh, in particular about um, some issues they were having with denials from UHC where the, uh, that, that particular payer wanted to see um, systemic response to an infection beyond that expected from a local infection alone. Um, I know that this is a big issue. Maybe is, is it the case as well in your organization and have you found any, any successful strategy or two maybe you could share with our audience today? Um, yes, we have suffered with multiple, when you read me the letter, denial letter that the lady typed in, we get that exact same letter from um, different payers. My advice is on the front end, um, make sure 
that the documentation is actually there and get the physician to link any organ dysfunction to the sepsis or the infection, which um, will also protect you against denials on the other side. And then we also have a little SOFA score printed out that we will use and talk to physicians about. They many times use the QSOFA score, which doesn't go into all the organ dysfunctions. And um, we can have them add that on the on the chart or talk to them about it and tell them why we think how many points they have. And sometimes send that in a query form to the physician and he will add the SOFA score to the documentation. When you start getting the letters of denial back, the um, insurance auditors are notorious for cherry picking different things out of the chart. So we make sure that we read the denial entirely and you can't just go by the letter and say, oh, well, they're right. Because when you look further in the chart, many times they've cherry picked things um, and left out other diagnoses that were actually there. Um, I think it's very important that you quote literature from peer-reviewed journals. Um, there's just been one that I always use is from the CHESS journal, Implications of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock, Early Management Bundle, and Initial Lactate Measurement on the Management of Sepsis. That was in the August 2018 CHESS journal. Um, I found that helpful to quote literature there when it's talking about the mortality of lactic acid being elevated. Um, I also use uh, another from the CHESS journal, which is Clinical Evaluation of Sepsis 1 and Sepsis 3 in the ICU. It's from May of 2018. So my advice is to look at those evidence-based journals and you can quote mortality statistics. We have had some luck doing that. We also give the physician an out on the front end. if. Um, we have medical students here, and they've been taught that SIRS plus infection always equals sepsis. So when we craft our queries, we'll give them, you know, patient afebrile or um, or not being treated with the big gun antibiotics and give them the opportunity to say, oh, this patient just has a viral pneumonia, sepsis is ruled out. Um, but the letters just go mm -hmm. through each line that they send and craft a response and make sure that you um, dig through your chart. Thanks, so even, yeah. On top of that, I think that we, we're probably all nationally feeling the pain, but I wanted to give her leave with some hope that something we touch also on in our webinar is that in, for January of 2019, United Healthcare formally adopted the sepsis 3 definition. And they've announced that publicly. They're one of, I, I don't know, Rhoda, do you have anyone else who's formally like announced that as their framework um, and position? But no, I've only seen the letter from United. So we've also seen, though, that, for instance, New York State is fighting back against this, and they have actually ratified into their legislation that they that payers are going to be forced to recognize the sepsis 2 definition because that, as a state, is what they are using to identify sepsis. And so basically, United Healthcare has had to conform to the state of New York um, for its commercial and its advantage plans. Mm. Um, if you so look at hopefully something else coming down. Yeah. Look at the mortality decrease 
based on the surviving sepsis campaign, like 20 some percent reduced mortality um, to recognize sepsis and treat it. Gotcha. Well, I'm standing in the background raising my pom poms to you guys because uh, <laughs> I'm a big Step 2 fan. So, uh, Brian, did you want me to go on to another question or did you yeah, want to? We're, we're getting short on time, but maybe, um, Laura, you could touch ask about this, the sepsis champion. I was kind of interested in that one, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Okay. Um, yeah, um, it sounds like you guys have been really successful when it comes um, to how you're handling sepsis and the appointing of a sepsis champion. I kind of like to call them sepsis superheroes um, <laughs> at organizations. Can you um, kind of enlighten us on what this role is about and who um, best performs that, that role? Uh, yeah, so we actually, it was kind of obvious at our facility where we wanted to go. We knew we needed a champion in the ED because 91% of our sepsis cases uh, present with sepsis on arrival and majority of those all come in through the ED. So we knew to make the most headway on this, we needed it to come out of the ED. And so we selected a physician physician champion who's been a, who's been around our facility for quite a while. And although he originally was employed by us and we've since contracted out our um, ED services, um, he is still here with us and acts as our champion. He and I together went through a number of different conferences back before 2015 when the measure went live, just kind of gaining feedback from what all these other facilities were doing, both out in the field, in their ERs, what they were doing um, just uh, across the cont continuum continuum of care. And so he has been super active. He helped um, we, recently. We also had an EMR update back in, well, not recently, but since all of this went live. And he helped to really craft a lot of the changes in our EMR to prompt physicians to um, time their focused exams to select a severity level of sepsis uh, by choosing one of those definitions. He has been instrumental in making changes that impact um, for instance, our lactic acid becoming a critical value, and then thus um, we work to put into play different rules within our EMR to hardwire things that he has all been instrumental in helping us write. Um, he also co-attends um, our antimicrobial stewardship campaign, which at a couple of times down the road, that intersection was a big um, tumultuous where it almost seemed like we were sort of fighting against each other about we're starting too many antibiotics in the ED too soon. No, we're trying to identify sepsis as soon as possible and we're working really hard to make our triage screening less sensitive. And so there were a lot of things that we were able to curtail obstacles along the way that by having uh, a champion from the ED that was very well respected and very much involved in our EMR processes was just a major compliment to our program. That's great. Awesome. All right. Well, we're running short and a little on time here. I'm just going to wrap things up uh, on, on our interview portion. I'm going to pop back over to our poll question, but we got some great comments from our audience. And I'm going to be telling them in just a few minutes about a, a, an offer we're having for our Actus podcast listeners, so Laura and Rhoda are going to be doing a, a full webinar, a 90-minute webinar on this topic for us um, on July 18th, so a little over two weeks. 
if you stick around to the end of the show, we're going to give you a, a discount code on that program, because certainly covering this topic in a lot more detail than we could get into today. But really nice job, and appreciate you guys going through um, the success you've had within within uh, at Bowling Green, and and um, a lot of great tips and information there. Let's, let's bounce back to our poll question that we asked our audience. Um, so again, we asked, are sepsis screenings in your organization based on sepsis 2 or sepsis 3 criteria? And our winner here is sepsis 2 with 49% of our audience using that um, for sepsis screenings. So 7% say sepsis 3, but our next largest bucket was a blend of the two with 26%. Uh, 13% don't know, not sure what to make of that one, and 4% not applicable. So again, we I always say that not all of our listeners are currently in CDI or maybe not working in an acute care facility. So any uh, any thoughts there, Rhoda and Laura, anything that surprises you with our poll results? No, not really. That's what we saw at um, the national conference as well. And I think for patient safety, step two is the definite way to go because that's what we're here for to save lives right. Right. I think too I mean if you've read what we'll share with you guys is some of the the feedback and comments from a lot of different professional agencies who too are starting to push back against sepsis 3 because of the delays in early identification mm -hmm. that we often get to from sepsis 2 so in theory, there's a lot of your patients that are going to overlap. You're going to get to sepsis, um, whether you're screening from two or three. But it's those differences where oftentimes if you're only using sepsis three, you may not identify sepsis until later when you have more information that you don't necessarily need with sepsis two. And I think, too, it's really important for those people that don't know if um, your CDI department as well as your quality department really need to be involved in the screening questions, especially with nurses being able to set the timer for the step one bundle, to be really involved with what nurses are being screened to answer on an ongoing basis. So we worked, we constantly review as a part of our committee how we've worded those questions in our ED triage screening as well as in our nursing-based shift assessments, and it varies um, between those two screenings because of what results may be back. So I think that it's really pivotal for those people that don't know to bring that to the table and start to review what's in their EMR and what nursing is actually answering. So often for us, that's what sets the alarm for the nurse to to alarm, or to notify the physician. And we still have a lot of physicians that are really looking for that prompt from someone else. Maybe they hadn't been in to see the patient and the nurse may be the first one to say, hey, we just got these values back. Um, they've screened positive for sepsis. Can we start our order set? Right. All right, good stuff. Okay, I'm going to just bounce over here quickly to our In the News segment. Again, In the News is a regular segment of the podcast featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. You should be seeing on your screen um, a news story I'm sharing from actus.org. Actus comments to CMS on the fiscal year 2020 IPPS proposed rule. So um, I'm going to include the link in the show notes as well as some additional resources that you guys, um, Rhoda and Laura, shared with me during uh, during the program that we couldn't get to regarding some sepsis resources. But 
wanted to share our um, this particular resource with our audience today. Um, you probably know, you should know by now that the, the CMS has issued the fiscal year 2020 IPPS proposed rule. There were a number of changes, almost 1,500 proposed changes to the CCMCC list in particular uh, of interest for, the, for our CDI audience. Um, many of these were concerning. A lot of downgrades to the CCs and MCCs that we know our patients are currently uh, in, in, uh, suffering with in, in, in our facilities and are frequently a subject of CDI query. So uh, we have a new regulatory committee, which is a group of volunteers from our membership uh, led by one of our instructors, a couple of our instructors, Alan Frady and, and uh, Sean Brody, um, sent put together a lengthy comment to CMS on these proposed changes, sort of um, agreeing with some of them, but rebutting many of them. Uh, we took a clinical perspective on our commentary to CMS. CMS has a lot of claims data. It's hard to rebut that based on what the data they're seeing and, and their methodology, but we did find some instances where their methodology, uh, the, the data they were presenting didn't seem to align with the proposed downgrades. We commented on those, and when we didn't have recourse to that data, we used a lot of um, just our, our members' clinical expertise and acumen to talk about the type of resources that go into the treatment of these patients. So this is a, it's a lengthy comment. It's more than 5,000 words. I want you to know that you can download it here and read it. Um, it's available to you. This has been sent to CMS, so the comment period has closed. Uh, CMS was requesting comments um, by June 24th. They review all of these, and hopefully we'll see some changes in the final rule. Perhaps we'll see some of these proposed changes and downgrades uh, not be implemented. But if you would like to see the hard work that our regulatory committee put in on the proposed rule, it is here. Uh, we commented on a number of issues. We had kind of a preamble with some overall commentary about the rule, a little bit about Actus, and then we got into uh, the diagnosis we were uh, commenting on specifically, like acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, uh, BMI was another one we commented on, cardiac arrest, uh, we commented on ESRD and CKD number of changes. So if you'd like to see what our position rationale is, uh, please check that out. Again, it's available here on actus.org. And finally, um, as I alluded to earlier in the show, and again, want to thank Rhoda and Laura for a great job today. If you like the show and you want to learn more about this topic, we got a number of requests during the show about specific criteria and some of the, the core measure and ab abstraction uh, criteria. Um, more about denials, people looking to learn more about that. We're going to be covering this in a lot more detail on July 18th. So we have a full show coming up with these uh, two folks, um, Untangling the Sepsis Web, Surviving Sepsis in 2019. If you're a listener, a regular listener of Actus Podcast, we are offering you a special discount. Um, if you use the product code PODCAST60, podcast 60 that will take an additional $60 off your registration for this webinar um, so I will be posting that link again in the show notes and that will allow you to get it in at a discounted rate we are going to be covering a lot more than we covered on today's program there is a description of 
of the show here um, in a full agenda that I encourage you to check out after the program. Uh, but a lot more about developing sepsis pathways, EHR updates uh, that they've made to help capture uh, this diagnosis, um, more on appeals and integrating quality coding and CDI abstraction uh, in, into the uh, review process. So any, any last minute thoughts from you, Rhoda or Laura, about the webinar and what you might plan to cover? Um, we'll cover more specific denial letters, and Laura's going to go in depth about how she got our EMAR um, really up to date and useful. Right. We'll also talk a little bit about how we built our team, who's it's, who is important to have in the team, and we'll actually show some of the hardwiring we've built into our EMR to trigger things sooner, um, but also to prompt physicians to both document certain things and to order certain things. Um, so we'll walk through our our personal roadmap and how we got to where we are. We'll also talk about some of our struggles about where we are on step one today, um, largely due to some very trivial, minimal things. Even though you might hit all the criteria, logistically some of um, some of their uh, rules as a part of the specifications um, can really mean for getting down in the weeds to make small tweaks to things. Um, so we'll be talking about both pre-field, in the hospital, what you can do to help improve your rate. We're going to sh show you how the abstractors work through a case. So there's going to be a lot more finer detail. All right. I love it. Sounds like a great program. All right. That is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI. Of course, we'll be back here in two weeks for our next program, which is CDI and home health. CDI branching out into new avenues and, and new, uh, new, new settings. So as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests or ideas about the format of the show, you can send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. I want to thank you all for, for joining and um, hope to see you back here again in two weeks. Have a great 4th of July, and uh, we'll see you soon, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye, guys.